The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. How will investors respond to last year's dramatic tumble in stock and bond markets? What's the outlook for investing using environmental, social and governance factors? And how will the market for financial data evolve? All this and more in the upcoming conversation. Welcome to The Exchange, the podcast where Reuters Breaking Views columnists talk to people of interest and business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Peter Thalassin, the global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. This week's episode is a poignant one for me. Back in the early 1990s, just after graduating from college, I got a job as a writer for Morningstar, which was then a fast-growing Chicago-based firm providing information on stocks and funds for investors. Based in the London office, my job was to analyze European companies with US stock market listings. In those very early days of the internet, my reports were still distributed in print form, and my colleagues and I had to spend a lot of time explaining to suspicious companies and fund managers that we were calling from a US company called Morningstar, not the Morningstar, which is the left-wing British daily newspaper. Fast forward almost three decades, and Morningstar has annual revenue of close to $2 billion and a market capitalization of nearly $10 billion. It still analyzes funds and stocks, but it now also provides data on venture capital deals and company sustainability efforts. It rates bonds and maintains a suite of stock market indices, and it does almost all of this digitally. I recently connected with Kunal Kapoor, Morningstar's CEO. Kunal joined the company in 1997 as a data analyst and performed a string of jobs before taking the top role six years ago. We talked about stock market gyrations, the future of investing, and the market for financial data. I enjoyed the conversation a lot. I hope you do too. Fidel Kapoor, welcome to The Exchange. Thanks, Peter. Happy to be here. Yeah, and Happy New Year. Happy um, New Year to you and your family too. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot I want to talk about. Um, uh, but I thought we kind of probably have to start uh, with the state of the markets. We're talking in the first week of January after what was a truly terrible year for investors. I think the S&P index was down 18 uh, percent, but investors also lost their money in government bonds, corporate debt, emerging markets, just about every other asset class except commodities. I'm just curious, you know, given that you spend your your, your life looking at, at markets and, and thinking about markets, how do you sort of think about what happened and, and, and where markets are now? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, Peter, um, I, I'll just start by saying that uh, I'm horrible at predicting the markets. And so whatever I say here, uh, you probably want to take uh, with a grain of salt as it pertains to sort of the macro uh, piece of things. But I, I, I do think from an individual security perspective, our analysts have some interesting perspectives. And so maybe I'll try to answer your question slightly differently than uh, perhaps um, someone who wants to take a top-down approach might. Mm -hmm. But here's what I'll say. The starting point for investors today is far more favorable than it was 12 months ago. You just uh, rolled off your tongue, you know, a litany of uh, different asset classes that are much, much lower than they were 12 months ago. And it seems counterintuitive to a lot of people, but if you're an investor, that's actually a better starting point and your probability for earning better returns uh, is higher today than it was at the start of 2022, precisely because we've had uh, these downturns. So, um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, a lot of what happened last year was um, markets reacting to interest rates going up, uh, markets reacting to the fact that valuations had gotten silly in some sectors, uh, and in some cases, uh, markets just sort of 
getting back to their long-term averages. You sort of see that play out in history over and over again, even though uh, obviously people try uh, to ignore history from time to time. Um, but you know, if you look at individual securities and around the world, our analysts cover a number of um, stocks. And at the start of 2022, we didn't have a long list of companies around the world that we rated five star. Today, if you look at our coverage universe around the world, the number of five star stocks is near, you know, the peaks that we've seen in the past. And so um, that's what markets can kind of do to you. You can feel the worst at moments like this, yet the opportunity is more promising. And so, you know, uh, Buffett has often said that you should be greedy when others are fearful. And everyone looks at that and says that that's great advice and very few people follow it. But that's kind of how I feel about the markets right now. You don't really feel good about them. But really, if you step back and think about your opportunity for returns over the following five years, they're looking a lot better, whether it's fixed income, whether it's equities. Um, the opportunities just seem better than ever before. Yeah. And so just, sorry, just to be clear on the five star stocks for people who aren't familiar with that this is this is a sort of risk adjusted return type actually for, for five star stocks what, what we what we do is we assign a fair value to the companies that we cover and the the rating uh, relates to the discount to that fair value so um we also assign a moat rating and the wider a company's moat the smaller the discount we demand uh, to owning it and uh, the more volatile and less modi, as we like to say, the company, the higher the discount that we demand before we would uh, put it at a higher rating. Yeah. So, I mean, my, uh, my personal experience, but also, uh, you know, sort of what I've observed at Morningstar over the years, you've always been very sort of, um, you know, rigorous in terms of the analysis and sort of bottom up and, you know, um, I mean, I think the other thing that we saw in financial markets, um, and I think you commented on this last year, was 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 you know they sucked in uh, a, a bunch of younger people um, and we saw that play out partly through the meme stock boom and I guess we saw it in crypto as well but it sort of felt like there was a period where where the fundamentals kind of you know the, the old rules no longer applied and then and then they did again I just wonder sort of sort of how you think about those people who came into the market um, are you expecting them to Kind of retire and lick their wounds or do you think that that's a sort of permanent shift that's taking place well it sort of depends on all of us a little bit and and when i say all of us it means everyone who's part of the industry right and historically there's been a bit of sneering at small investors and and a little bit of this mentality that retail investors don't actually know what they're doing yet the reality is they do and most of the money on you know most major exchanges around the world is controlled by institutional investors and so to kind of say that it's only retail investors who tend to buy high and sell low is abjectly false. The data doesn't support that. Institutional investors are just as prone to that behavior as are retail uh, investors. And so my perspective here is that it's a really good thing that so many people became interested in investing. Um, my fear is that just like their parents who became interesting during the tech media telecom boom of the early OOs, and then who subsequently lost interest in investing, we have a generation here that could lose interest as well if they're not engaged properly. So when I say it's on all of us, it means it's on folks in the industry, including Morningstar, to make a compelling reason for why they should stay investors. 
because once you've gotten a taste for it and understood what investing is about, I think that's important. And there's nothing wrong if people use a little bit of their money to play around. Like we all probably want to do that with some portion of our money and financial advisors will say do that with like maybe 3% of your portfolio or some such thing. The key is not to let it become full-blown and probably for a lot of people, they sort of entered investing in a full-blown fashion that way. But now the question is how do we actually help them think beyond that and, and, and take advantage of the many tools that are available to them. I mean, the reality is it's a pretty good time to be an investor. Fees are low and coming down. Uh, Portfolio-like solutions are available. Uh, there's great research from firms like Morningstar to assist you. And um, as an investor, choice is uh, you know, really very great in, in, in terms of how you can personalize the portfolio. You, we'll, I imagine, talk about ESG at some point. And one of the things I love about ESG is less about how you think about it politically, which is sort of the noise around it, but more about the fact that it's empowering to you and I to make choices, even if those choices are different and abjectly the opposite of the choices um, you know, the, the other person may be making. But they are choices and they allow you to be personalized and allow you to engage. And so I'm really hopeful that the data, the tools, the research now exist to take people who've kind of become investors and help them convert to being successful investors. It takes work. And, you know, just like compounding, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not the thing you want to sort of put in the headlines, but it's meaningful. And um, I, I think can have a real impact on people's ability to be financially secure. Yeah. So, I mean, ESG is we should, definitely something I want to talk to you and I'll come back to that. Um, but just in terms of delving a bit into what you were saying there about, about sort of personalization and so forth. I mean, I guess if you sort of look through the kind of the, the, the ups and downs of the market, what, what, how should we think about sort of what the, the, the development of, of investing, particularly for personal investors in terms of like, what's that going to look like and what is going to be available and how are people going to be able to sort of, you know, uh, uh, make their own choices? Yeah, well, I think one of the interesting things and, and the way I think about it and the way Morningstar is approaching it is it's an opportunity to take the best of passive and the best of active and bring it together. Um, I think the reality is, you know, we went from a period maybe in the 80s and 90s where active was ascendant to two decades now where passive has been ascendant and for a lot of investors, that's been a good thing because it's low cost, uh, well diversified portfolios. But where I think I've noticed it being a problem is on the engagement side. People don't feel connected to their money. Uh, in many cases, yes, it's not fun for people. And that does matter in terms of uh, people wanting to be savers. And what I see with personalization is it brings the best of those worlds into play. And so uh, it doesn't mean that you need to be hyper personalized. But you can start with an index. You could take the one of one of the Morningstar Global Indexes, for example, and you you could say, I want to take this index and I want to start to personalize it. And so that means you then start to, you know, first even just think about an issue like your tax situation, and how can your portfolio personalize to that so that you know, in a, in a commingled situation, everyone in that commingled account is going to have the same tax outcome. Suddenly here with that index being personalized to you and the tax choices being personalized to you, you can start to do that. Then next, uh, perhaps if you, if you, Peter, are building an account, you've worked in financial services for a long time, maybe you have more exposure to financial services than the average person. And so maybe that Morningstar index that we're building and personalizing for you then suddenly has less of a financial services exposure to reflect the fact that you already take on a lot of risk 
uh, in your day to day um, by being so closely affiliated with that sector and you don't necessarily need it in your portfolio. So you adjust for that. And then maybe there's a few things that you care about that you want to think about. You may think that um, there's a certain trend that you want to introduce into your portfolio and um, you know, maybe you do a little bit uh, with that. But that's the idea. You can pull the levers up or down in a way that makes sense. And really the holy grail for us is also then taking that conversation and helping an advisor say to you, Peter, okay, those are good choices, but you should also understand that they come with some risks and trade-offs. And I think that's what's going to be interesting with personalization is that when faced with the risks and trade-offs, will people want to make those choices? I think yes, but we need to get to a place where we can have the conversation around what additional risks and trade-offs are introduced into a portfolio, good or bad, mm. um, because there will be some um, one way or the other. And what role, uh, where do you see Morningstar sort of fitting into that world? I mean, I guess historically you would think there's sort of like there are the, the providers of information and then there are the financial advisors and then there are investors and um, so each you know have their own role in that system. Is that, does it continue that way or do you sort of become more actively involved in the in the investing process? Yeah, so the way we think about it is we're happy to provide you with the data research and tools if you want to do it yourself. And certainly we work with a lot of um, other firms to help them build their solutions that they then make available. Or we're happy to do it for you as long as you're working with a wealth, wealth manager or advisor. So for example, our personalized indexing service is only available through financial advisors who work then directly with individuals. So we don't have a service today that goes directly to individuals. We work through advisors. Um, but a lot of our efforts on uh, direct indexing um, you know, are focused on the advisor because we think that the advisor can really help um, have those conversations around trade-offs and things like that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so, uh, I mean, as a CEO, um, how, how does what's going on sort of make you think about your business in terms of the priorities? I mean, obviously you're, you're providing financial information and analytics. Uh, some of your businesses like the indexes are, are sort of leveraged to, to, to market activity or to levels of markets. Are you sort of you hunkering down for a leaner period? Well, the way I think about it is that, you know, we want to continue to build out our business to be aligned with the way the investor portfolio is evolving, right? And so you and I were talking before we started recording this and we're talking about the fact that, you know, in the 90s, when we both sort of came into the industry, it was a simpler time, right? And uh, I've often made the point that you basically in those days had a portfolio that had bonds, stocks, and cash. And Morningstar was in the business of making sure we could help you x-ray, so to speak, that type of a portfolio. Today, we have to acknowledge and realize that asset classes have changed. There's alternatives. Within alternatives, there's a bunch of sub-asset classes. Bonds are different. I mean, if you look at a bond fund these days, so many bond funds don't even own bonds anymore. <laughs> They're all third-party instruments that get you the exposures that you want. And so it's important for us to kind of continue to build out databases and research that kind of demystify and allow us to continue X-raying um, that part of, of an investor's portfolio. In fact, PitchBook is our largest product today. And it's focused on the private and venture cap markets. And so I think it's a sign of the times that that has happened. And I'm not trying to avoid your question, but to kind of come back to it, of course, we're 
being thoughtful in the way we run our business. And of course, we want to be, um, you know, careful in an environment that seems uncertain. Um, but also, we want to make sure we're doing the right things for the long run. And and we set up our business uh, in a way where we try to make long-term decisions first and foremost. And so we, we're very careful about those trade-offs and how we make them. And and so we'll continue to invest in a thoughtful way. But clearly, uh, just like everybody else, we are you know, doing things like slowing down hiring. Yeah, um, I mean, you mentioned sort of private markets. I mean, obviously, but you, you you bought PitchBook a few years ago, um, to tracking uh, sort of you know, venture capital, private equity investments. Um, there's been a huge growth in that area. Um, there's there's now sort of a, a lot of debate about valuations and so forth, and and kind of whether the valuations are accurate, or whether they, and and, and what's going to happen there. Do you sort of, but more, more fundamentally, are you still a believer that private markets, unlisted markets, will continue to grow as a proportion of the total, or do you think we sort of see a bit of a pause in that in that development? Yeah, I think it's likely that they will continue to grow because capital needs to find a home, and candidly. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs and companies have essentially liked the structure of operating privately. And so I don't see that necessarily slowing down. Um, I, I think it's fair to ask though, whether returns will continue to be at the levels that they have been. And so I started out at the, you know, at the beginning of this conversation saying in the public markets, I anticipated that returns would be better in the next five years than they, have, than they would have been at the start of 2022. Um, I think if you go to the private markets, one can question if that would be the case or not. You certainly have not seen a downdraft uh, in the private markets in the way that you have in the public markets. And so your starting point is automatically higher. And um, I think a lot of people kind of got into the industry and um, you'll see some sort of shakeout in terms of some of the folks on the margins who probably should not have been raising the kind of money that they did having a tough time in the next three to five years. And so. Uh, will demand stay? Will it continue to grow? Yes. Is it possible that returns will be less over the next seven years than they were over the previous seven years? Probably. Yeah. Um, I also I have to ask you about crypto. I mean, I think I think you were sort of you were always fairly just looking back at kind of what you said publicly in the past. You were always fairly skeptical about about the sort of case for crypto as an investment. Uh, I, I guess looking at sort of the wreckage or, or, or the turmoil that we've seen, um, do you, is, is there anything that comes out of this that has sort of a lasting value, do you think? There are some very smart people at Morningstar who believe so. And I think they make compelling arguments for it. Uh, to be fair, I'm not in that camp. I'm, I'm skeptical and I think there are already enough good alternatives available. but. You know, I, I said earlier that the investor portfolio is evolving, and I think probably, as with all things, when something gets hot, too many people end up owning it, and that that sort of happened with crypto. And I think fewer people are going to own it, at least for the next couple of years. But enough are going to own it where Morningstar needs to be able to talk about it, present research on it, and have an opinion on it. Um, and, and so I think we're having that debate internally about how to approach it. Um, there, that there are both sides, but you're right that personally I'm skeptical. And um, I, I, I think while there's some of the, some of the underlying technology is interesting, um, the financial services use cases are not as 
compelling to me as they are to other people. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course, you do wonder how you do fundamental research on cryptocurrencies, but uh, anyway, I'd be interested to hear what your uh, your your colleagues um, uh, have to say about that. Um, so um, I think they would tell you that maybe it it, it has less um, to do with crypto being. Uh, easy currency for exchange like the pound or the dollar and more to do with it being something that can be used um, in apps in certain situations such as gaming um, as a currency of sorts. And so the use cases that I think our teams like are more limited in that fashion than perhaps what is broadly written about. Yeah, so so let's talk about ESG. I mean, you know, just based investing on the base of environmental, social and governance factors. A huge driver of in investment activity, um, uh, a lot of money's flowed into those types of strategies. But I mean, in the US, those three letters have become also something of a, not a dirty word, but a dirty acronym. And you've seen some some firms who've taken a sort of quite public stance on that now trying to be a bit more neutral in terms of how they how they think about that. I just wonder, how do you position yourself when it's when it's such a politically charged subject, particularly in the US? Well, I'll just start by pushing back that it's all three letters. I think most people agree that good governance right. is and always has been importance right. and uh, the, the factors around good governance, I, th I think are not particularly controversial. I think on the E as well, um, while there's some political noise around the E, I think the reality is that most people believe that there's some type of transition going on in many industries. And so you have to think about how that plays into how you build a portfolio. And I think like that's not a political argument. It's basically a risk-based future returns argument. Um, I think the S is probably the most controversial. But what I would say is it's where I think it's controversial is when there's a belief that it has to be one or the other. And that when you're implementing a strategy, if you're providing information on it, you're only providing one option. I can tell you, for example, that when our ESG data is used, it is used by clients who are basically on both sides of the market or both sides of a trade. And it's not as simply as one saying, I'm for something, and that's the only party that is actually interested in that data. And this goes to the heart of personalization, goes to the heart of how markets work. Uh, it's additional data that allows people to make choices. And I don't think um, we need to necessarily be judgmental on those choices because in time, the market itself will make those judgments in the form of um, lower or higher risk adjusted returns that people will realize based on the choices that they've made. You are making, you are sort of attaching scores to things, right? You're sort of, you are sort of saying, well, on this, on this criteria, this company has a score of X and this company has a score of Y. So, so you are making judgments. And then it's up to the judgments. It's, and then it's up to a portfolio manager, investor, whoever, to make a decision as to how they want to implement those. It's no different than we would say this year's evaluation of a company. And it's up to someone's discretion as to whether they agree with that valuation or not. The important thing is that there's total disclosure around the methodology, the approach, and then the implementation can and should be done as people feel like 
uh, it kind of makes sense uh, for them. I think what, what what's been missing and, and one thing that we are interested in working on and, and, and kind of spending time on is this notion of what is the actual impact of all of this on a portfolio? And earlier in the conversation, I had referenced the fact that an advisor needs to have the conversation around trade-offs. So today, if you go into financial advisor, you're anyway having a conversation around trade-offs, but that's sort of basically built about around your risk profile. So you'll do a morning sort of risk questionnaire and it'll ask you certain things around your risk tolerance. And, and that's been a very normalized conversation. I don't think this is anything different. This actually feeds into a risk tolerance questionnaire. Like if you're willing to take certain tilts in your portfolio, and that can be that you are, for example, pro um, fossil fuel investments or uh, you believe otherwise, you, regardless, you take on some risk in your portfolio and some return opportunity. And the advisor needs to be able to have that conversation. So I'm excited about it because I just think it brings so much more data to the surface. It allows people to make interesting and unique choices and it creates a market ultimately. And the markets work because of all these differing forces, these disagreements. And um, I think ESG is just the latest set of data that allows for that vibrancy to exist. Yeah, I guess the risk is that that as with a lot of these things, that that you know, a set of quite quite granular and complicated sort of judgments or measurements or whatever then gets kind of boiled down into a single a single label or something like that. And that, yeah, that's that, fair, but humanity has been doing that with just about everything for the longest time, right? So the question is whether you want to take the time to actually understand what's behind it or not. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think it's a effective argument to say that collecting the data in and of itself is a problem just because there's a, you know, a score attached to it. The question is whether you want to educate yourself. It's no different than when you walk into a grocery store and you're trying to buy something and whether you make the decision to actually understand why it's labeled organic or not. I don't know how many people do or don't, but there's plenty of data behind how organic labeling works in a grocery store. And a lot of it is actually pretty questionable. So um, this is how investors are empowered. It's through information. What they do with it is ultimately up to them. But I don't think um, we should operate with the assumption that they're incapable of understanding things if they, you know, make the effort for, around it. Yeah. So how do you see that playing out then? Because you're you're right in the sense that we're definitely at that moment where there are lots of different companies doing ratings and, and, and attaching scores and there's there's a wide range of sort of variation in terms of those scores. Do you, I, I, what do you imagine happening? Is this all going to kind of coalesce around some standard or is it, gonna, you know, some people sort of talk about it like saying, well, this is how accounting standards got started. And then eventually yeah. everybody sort of agreed on a sort of a methodology. Is that, is that I mean, the I think there will There will be some standards. I'd like to think that we will be the standard. And I think our work sort of um, is sort of geared towards that. But, um, you know, what, what, what I will say is that, um, you also want to be thoughtful about not pushing for a standard so quickly that it essentially caps off any innovation or um, allows for really a higher sort of bar to be set. And when when you ask like what's going to happen, how it's all going to kind of play through, the thing I would just point to is um, the train has kind of left the station in terms of businesses and markets thinking about how these topics already factor into the way they do things. I don't think anyone would quibble with an insurance company that says, hey, if you live near a 
area that is having extreme weather, insurance on your house is going to be higher than if you live in a place with very stable weather patterns. Mm. That's use of ESG data to come to you know very basic financial decisions that I think are not that complicated to understand. So I think these kinds of things um, are already happening and they're happening in a thoughtful way. And I, th I think the, de the demand and usefulness will only increase. And part of what you were saying earlier really resonates, which is that I think people need to maybe just gain a better understanding of what the data is and how to apply it. And that maybe is a little bit of a, um, you know, that, that may be something that needs to be worked on. Right. Um, so one thing I'm just cu curious about, um, we're talking a lot about data. Um, just interested in your views more broadly on 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 that whole business. I mean, you've your Morningstar has made a number of acquisitions. Um, you bought Sustainalytics, which which provides sustainability. We talked about PitchBook. Uh, you bought a leveraged loan data provider. Um, so you've been kind of you know expanding in that area. But but mean, in the meantime, also there are some of these big transactions going on. The London Stock Exchange bought Refinitiv. Uh, S&P Global merged with IHS Market. I just wonder, as you look at the sort of the landscape, do you see more of that kind of activity? Do you look at some of these behemoths and think, actually, you know, it's going to be a sort of a land grab and everybody's going to get bigger? How do you how do you look at it? Well, I try not to predict a lot of those things um, because I'm not very good at doing that. What I will say is our focus is really on making sure the investor is empowered. And when we build out new databases, add new research, it's to do exactly what I was saying earlier, which is that we wanna make sure that we can help the investor demystify that portfolio and be successful in hitting their financial goals. And so when we do things like add a private market database to our portfolio, it's because investors are using more of those types of investments in their portfolios. Um, you know, I, I don't wake up and think about what's going on among the behemoths, as you sort of said. I wake up and think about our customers. I wake up and think about our employees. Uh, those are the things that are important, and that's kind of where I spend my time. I'm a horrible forecaster of uh, consolidation and, you know, what others are thinking, so. Okay, we will uh, we'll take that on board. Um, <laughs> Uh, can I, uh, we're out of time, unfortunately, um, but but this was really fascinating. So thank you very much for uh, for taking the time to chat. And um, yeah, I really appreciated your questions, Peter. Thanks so much. And uh, well, we'll uh, hopefully stay in touch. That's all for this week. A big shout out to Oliver Taslick in London who produced this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Megaphone or wherever you like to listen. You can check out our views every day on breakingviews.com or on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.